In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, I'll be speaking with Max Kuhn, a software engineer at R Studio, who was previously Senior Director of Non-Clinical Statistics at Pfizer Global Research and Development. Max was applying models in the pharmaceutical and diagnostic industries for over 18 years. What are the biggest challenges in pharmaceuticals that data science can help to solve? How are data science and statistics generally embedded in organizations such as Pfizer? What aspects of the pharmaceutical business run the gamut of non-clinical statistics? Stick around to find out, along with insights into Max's work on open source software such as Carrot, which he built for predictive modeling, otherwise known as machine learning. I'm Hugo Bound anderson a data scientist at DataCamp, and this is DataFrame. Welcome to Data Framed, a weekly data camp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems it can solve. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and DataCamp at DataCamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Hi there, Max, and welcome to Data Framed. Hi, happy to be here. Great to have you here. Really, really excited to talk about the role of, of data science in, in, in pharmaceuticals, which you've worked on for, for, for a long time. But before we do that, I'd like to find out a, a bit about you. What, what are you known for in the data science community? Well, uh, I've been a working statistician for like, I don't know, like 18 years. I think uh, the thing that people know me most from is uh, some R packages for predictive modeling, like Carrot and um, a few others. And just, I wrote a book in about 2013 on predictive modeling, and I think people know me from there too. What's predictive modeling? Uh, yeah, that's a term I use basically to cover like machine learning and pattern recognition. And I mostly use that instead of machine learning because the, the phrase machine learning has been co-opted, you know, maybe three times in my career. Like, you know, I f was first in graduate school, that meant like, you know, old school neural networks and then you know, five or 10 years after that, if you said machine learning, people assumed you meant like kernel methods, like support vector machines. And now, you know, we're back to like uh, deep neural networks. So for me, predictive modeling is a little bit better because it doesn't have those connotations. And it's, it's like a direct name about, you know, it describes exactly what you're trying to do, uh, I think, in a more understandable way. So it's about making predictions. Yeah, basically. Awesome. And of course, I started using Carrot, I think... Six years ago, when I was working in applied math research in in biology in in Connecticut, in in New Haven of of all places, close yeah, to, yeah, I remember that. Close to yeah. where you are. And one of the things that I found really wonderful about it is how intuitive the the API was. Also, you know, your vignettes and and, and your book provide wonderful educational resources. But the other reason I think, you know, historically why why Carrot is is strong is because it arose out of a real net. You made it because you needed it, right? Yeah. So, you know, I worked at uh, Pharma uh, in, at Pfizer for a while. And uh, when I first started there, I think it was like 2005, uh, you know, the good and bad of like working for a huge corporation is, you know, they you show up on day one, they give you this like nice high powered laptop uh, and you feel like you're ready to go, but then you don't have access to anything. It takes like 50 help desk tickets to get access to any data. And so I knew I was going to have like two or three weeks at least of like kind of like no productivity besides going to meetings and stuff. And so, you know, I talked to my boss and said, you know, I know I'm going to be doing like computational chemistry support and all that. And I've been thinking about writing an R package. It'll make that a lot easier. And I've got like a couple of weeks, I think, before I would get any data. And so I spent like, like almost all my time outside of meetings, just writing the, 
the skeleton of that and you know what it should do and um and I've rewritten it like three times but yeah that that was that was developed to support computational chemistry uh inside Pfizer how long ago was that uh it was 2005 and how at that point in time did you know how to write an R package or even what that meant or does that question make sense <laughs> it does but I think if you go back and look at the sources back then uh, maybe I you might judge that I'm not the best person to talk about that. Well, you know, I'd written like S plus packages. Uh, so I was using S plus before, you know, R was a thing. Uh, so I had a, you know, I had an idea of the the basic framework of doing that. And, and back then writing it back then, uh, I mean, I'm <laughs> old, I'm old now back in my day. Uh, yeah. Back then, uh, it wasn't as, um, there weren't as many, uh, rules and things it, you know when you run a package now there's like a thousand it feels like to me at least there's a thousand things that if you send it to crayon you might get dinged on or like what's the best way to do this and it's it's somewhat complex now and and at the time i didn't think that it, I, I never felt that it was and so i don't know i just started throwing things together like literally throwing things together and i know we used it inside of pfizer for about a year and a half before uh, i really contemplated um Sending to Cran, and you know, I even had to change the name. It had, originally had a different name, and then there was a package maybe a couple of weeks before I sent it to Cran that took the name. Uh, so I had to change it all and figure out what to call it and all this stuff. So yeah, and it's called Carrot C A R E T. And what is that? That's yeah. an acronym. It is my uh, my graduate advisor gave me a lot of great pieces of information or like n- nuggets of uh, wisdom. And one was uh, come up with what you want to call it, and then backfit the acronym. So it stands for like classification and regression training, which is a total hack on you know that acronym. Yeah, and I did. Were you contemplating doing a reboot or another package called Carrot, but spelled <laughs> like the vegetable? Yeah. Do I remember well, that? So yeah, uh, yeah, this is funny. Um, so I, the root I, vegetable theme as well, right? Exactly. I made a joke that yeah, that's that would be the next package would be called Carrot, you know, spelled. Like the vegetable, so I could just That's mess horrible. with everybody. And then Hadley said, no, you know, let's, we should do something else. So he came up with parsnip, which is like a, a white carrot, very similar to a carrot. And I actually have a package called parsnip right now, which does something similar to the original carrot. So it's just, it's become a confusing mess for how I've named these things. That's hilarious. Okay, great. So I hope to make it back to talk a bit more about carrot and, um, open source software package development and, and crown all these things later. But I want to jump in and, and find out about your, your work at Pfizer. Uh, but I want to take a slightly different approach. I, I want to know what your colleagues at Pfizer thought that you did there. So I was hired as a non-clinical statistician, and it was the second job I had with that title. And, and so what that is, it's exactly what it sounds like. So it's everything but clinical trials. So clinical trials tend to be these very dogmatic and formalized uh, process of doing you know, in a general sense, data collection and analysis. And non-clinical is almost the exact opposite of that. So a lot of times when people talk about non-clinical, they're usually talking about the early part of the drug development phase. So, you know, somebody comes up with an idea of what we should target in the body, all those activities fall under non-clinical statistics. So that would be like drug discovery, like discovering targets for drugs and things like that. And then after that, you start the, chem- the medicinal chemists start coming up with uh, compounds and chemical matter to try to make that happen. And so that would be like early uh, medicinal chemistry and drug discovery. And then once you have like a drug candidate, which is like the, the drug you think is the one you want to put in people, then you start working on the formulation part of it, the toxicity testing, 
you know, how it's going to be made, how, you know, how we characterize its, you know, its safety and if it's, it's uh, efficacy. And once you, you think you have all that worked out, then you go to the part where clinical takes over, where you think you start considering that we're going to put this in people. What are the, how are we going to do that? What dose are we going to do that? So before it goes into people or a person, all the stuff that happens before that is not clinical statistics. So it's usually connoted with like the scientific side of the business, like the research, like the scientific research part. And you were in the research and development branch of Pfizer, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was always hard to describe to people because they were like, what drug did you work on? I'm like, yeah, I know their compound numbers. I don't, I can never remember what the, you know, if, if you worked on one that actually became a drug, uh, we had no part in what those weird names were. So I'd be like, yeah, I worked on 785. You know, we just call them by the last three numbers, like their serial numbers, basically. It was that early. It was before it was even a, a real drug. Cool. So I, I think the three takeaways there for me are drug discovery, medicinal chemistry, and and developing drug drug candidates, and and then thinking about toxicity and and, and, and this type of stuff. I'm, I'm wondering how data analysis and data science are integrated into, in, into this process in, in, in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, so I've heard, and I've, I've even said, um, a lot of people say, well, you know, we were doing data science back then. We just didn't call it that. And I think in a lot of cases that's true. And I, I'm going to do my best to avoid saying that, but I probably will in like two minutes, (laughs) but you know, I've seen a lot of statisticians. So, you know, I'm trained as a statistician, like my PhD is in biostat and I've seen a lot of statisticians say like, aren't we the data scientists? And in my response to that is almost uniformly like, no, Statisticians, some of us have been sort of like functioning in that role for quite a while, but statisticians, you know, sometimes the stereotypes are true, but the stereotype is uh, historically have been people who sort of sit back, somebody brings them data, they ask a lot of questions about how the data was collected and how it was sampled, and then they generate a p-value and then go on to the next thing. And and that's not at all what like non-clinical statistics was or is. Uh, so I, I kind of view the difference between one of the main differences between like a data scientist and a statistician is being almost like a matter of like involvement or uh, intent. So, you know, a non-clinical statistician tends to get in the mud with the people who are generating the data. We're in the labs looking at how they do things. We're involved in, you know, the, the biology and the, the chemistry. Now, we don't have to be experts in those things, but knowing what's important to those particular groups of clients. Uh, so it was not very passive at all. It was very proactive and we were, you know, we were always trying to get ahead of the projects. In fact, the the best thing we, you know, the best things we ever did were try to solve problems that we knew that they had, but they never articulated. And we would develop like a, a solution to a problem and then bring it to them and say, hey, you know, I know you haven't really asked us about this, but we've noticed that you have a lot of issues with, you know, predicting under these types of compounds. And so we got some data together and built something for that and let us know if this is any good or not. And so to me, that's like the antithesis of how I sort of grew up with statistics, where it was more like the stereotype is bring us data, we'll judge you. And, uh, you know, if we feel like we should bless your data and the analysis, we'll do that. So it was very passive and sort of like, you know, come to the mountains sort of like approach to, um, to clients. And, and you just can't do that in non-clinical. You have to be involved in the science side. You have to be involved in how the, like the nitty gritty of how the data are generated. So, and, and I see that as like how data scientists 
tend to work is they tend to be more involved in the actual question of interest and how the you know, how the data is collected and, and you know we're all writing software to do these things. So it, it, sometimes I worry that statisticians just don't do analyses uh, because it's not in their favorite software and they wouldn't really think to write their own software to do things. So it, so that's what I mean by like it's a matter of involvement or intent. I, I just feel like if you're going to get in the mud with uh, the process you, that you're working on, you, you tend to be more of what somebody would call a data scientist or in my case, a non-clinical statistician. I like this because this idea of involvement, I think, speaks to two very interesting aspects of, of data science. The first is this idea of domain expertise, how much you need to know uh, about your, your your subject matter and whether you're not quite the expert there um, and your collaborator is, but you do know enough to to, to do your job is, is really important. The other thing it, it, it speaks to that I want to kind of pick your brain about is being involved in experimental design. And I know in your work at, at Pfizer, you know, there were two types of things you did. Well, several types of things, but two in, in particular, which is working on historical data, which you had no input into the experimental design, but then working on data, which you'd been involved in from even setting up the, the experiments. Is that is that right? Yeah. Well, the, the experimental design part was mostly, I worked at a molecular diagnostic company before Pfizer, and we were pretty hardcore about experimental design. So we'd, we had like a, a lot of high throughput uh, systems uh, where we're optimizing assays. And, you know, an assay is just a fancy word for saying like a laboratory test. And these assays would have like, you know, 15 or 20 critical components. We had to get the concentrations right. So at that company, you know, we design an experiment in the morning, you know, between like 10 and 2, they'd execute it. Uh, the data systems were pretty good, so we get the data back in a consumable form very quickly. We'd do the response surface design or the factorial design analysis really quickly. We discuss it at like four, and then plan the validation experiment or the confirmation experiment. So within like three days, we would have done like I don't know two or three experimental design iterations of optimizing these things. So it was very. You know, I've sort of gravitated to problems where. I don't think it's through my impatience, but uh, where you get very quick feedback. You know, you you design, you think you have a, a, a concentration or a combination of concentrations of these uh, components of the assay that you think works. And then, you know, they test it, you know, two hours later and you you know whether you failed miserably or you did really well. And so that was, um, that's a really nice aspect of doing that. Uh, and the, the chemistry work I did was the same way that, you know, you proposed that they make this compound based on your model prediction and it takes them like two, three days to synthesize it and data test it. And you know pretty quickly whether you did a good job or not. And and that's very different than, you know, I generated a p-value and I think these two things are different, but we won't know for like another year whether that is a, is a real thing or not. So it, I've always liked the idea of getting uh, like a feedback loop, an empirical feedback loop that says, yeah, yeah, this really worked or this didn't. So that was the, the experimental design part. Yeah, the other bit that you mentioned before I left Pfizer, we supported a lot of the assay scientists there. So, you know, a chemist designs a compound, it gets synthesized. So we physically have it. Uh, and then it gets run through like a battery of like anywhere from like three or four to a dozen different assays that measure, you know, does it work? What's its permeability? Like, will it get into a cell? What's its like lipophilicity? Like, how greasy is it? And so we built, uh, or the chemist uh, often would build models to make predictions of these things. And so we had um, just boatloads of historical data on compounds going back forever because these assays don't really change. Uh, and maybe around, I don't know, maybe around 2010, I think maybe it was a little bit before that, um, you know, we wanted to get in that data set. So 
we could query the summaries of the data, but we didn't have the the original replicates and things like that. And so the the assay scientists were like a little bit wary of that. We had good relationships with them, but they weren't quite ready to, I think they were afraid of like, what would these guys show with these data? And we kind of left that alone for a while. But but then about four or five years later, you know, they they came to us and said, you know, we'll give you the keys to the kingdom, look at all this and help us because, you know, they'll have a chemist run a, a compound twice in an assay. And if the, if the chemist didn't feel that the data were tight enough, they'd kind of raise a ruckus and say like, oh, this assay isn't any good. And then the management of the assay groups would have to come back and say, well, no, this is actually pretty good. And, you know, your results aren't really that any more consistent or inconsistent than any other compound. And here's some data. And so then rather than fighting fires, we got to a point where we did a lot of like analysis of their historical data using Bayesian analysis. And and so so the idea would be that, you know, given I have a measured value of 10, let's say 10.5 from this assay, you know, what's the probability that the true value is within certain boundaries or like what's the, you know, the um, credible interval and things like that. So you just have tons of historical data, which really opened up a lot of like new and interesting things we could do with Bayesian analysis to make. And we, this is when I started really using Shiny a lot. So we had this like uh, web portal that had, I don't know, like it's probably up to two dozen now, but at the time it was maybe like 15 different Shiny applications. Can you just tell us what Shiny is? So I work for our studio, and one of the the things that we have is uh, Shiny, which is like a web, like a web server for R. So it, what's great about Shiny is, with a little bit of code, you can come up with a really nice looking website that has controls on it, and behind those controls is R code. And so if you change, you know, you change the dial a little bit, it can automatically recalculate uh, things behind the scene, and then give you a nice sort of interactive visualization to show, let's say, a histogram or a box plot or the data themselves. Um, and so what we did is we pre-populated all these data sets with all the Bayesian analysis results that anybody might ever ask for. And then we would use Shiny to basically visualize these. So a chemist would come in and say, oh, well, I ran this assay and I got a, an assay value of 10.5. So they'd turn the slider to 10.5 and it would give them we wouldn't call it this, but it would give them the posterior distribution that describes, you know, what the plausible range and distribution of values it could be. So based on that, they could say, oh, well, you know, based on these thousands of historical data points, I know that this is sort of my measure of uncertainty for this particular compound that I measured. And that really helped everybody understand, you know, what the sort of baseline conditions of all these assays were. They could tell what was an aberrant value and what wasn't. And it also sort of opened the door up. So I, I did a presentation about this, and I think it'll be in the, the link will be in the show notes. And the name of it was uh, Statistical Mediation and Early Discovery, because we found ourselves being the mediators, that the, the consumers of the assays, which were the, the chemists or the biologist, would want it to be the highest you know, quality data that they could get, which is a good idea. But then the producers of the, the results, the assay scientists, you know, they've got budgets and, uh, you know, they're getting thousands of compounds of assay every week. And so we, we tended to be the people in the middle to sort of mediate between like, yeah, this one was kind of like a wild data point or no, this result that you got was really consistent based on all our historical data. And we just basically automated all the analysis and visualization of that stuff so that it could take, it was just like a known thing that everybody can consult what the, what the real values were. So it was, it was, it's a really interesting project statistically, and it just seemed to solve a ton of problems. So that was, uh, that was one of my favorites. 
That's cool. And I think what you're really speaking to as well is kind of the role of data science thinking and data scientific approaches to all of these these problems. And I'm wondering if you could speak more generally just about what the biggest challenges that you've seen in pharma that data science can help to solve. Uh, in pharma, especially at the part of pharma that I was in, the complexity of the data is just astounding. So chemistry, chemistry data can be complicated. You know, you have these molecular structures that, you know, we have all the software that can parse them and, and measure them in different ways, like the size of a molecule or its surface area. And that generates a lot of data. And those data have a lot of interrelationships between these variables that you have to sort of be aware of and deal with. And so, so chemistry has a lot of opportunities, have a lot of data, and the complexity is pretty high. But in a way, it's kind of like nothing compared to the complexity of biological data. So biology is just, it, it always astounds me, like, once I learned a lot about molecular biology, like what a game of mousetrap it is, right? So, you know, you, you modify this, this gene here and that triggers a compensatory reaction, this pathway over there that then sends a signal to this other pathway. And so just the biological complexity is astounding. And then back in the early 2000s with a lot of microarray technology, we were able to conduct very large scale biology experiments. So, you know, with a single sample, you can get, you know, 54,000 RNA measurements pretty easily. And those, you know, we have multiple measurements per gene. Uh, we know the sequences. We know all this stuff. So just the complexity of these data were just, it was very uh, daunting in a lot of ways. And we had a lot of good tools in Bioconductor and in R to, uh, to help us with that. And so, and, and that's, if anything, it's only getting worse uh, from the standpoint of complexity. So we're able to measure even more than we ever did before. And uh, we're asking more sophisticated questions. So the experimental design might be more complex. And so, you know, things aren't, I mean, basically things aren't getting more uh, simplistic. They're just getting more complicated and they're already pretty complicated to begin with. So, you know, having tools to visualize this stuff and make good methodology counts, because I've seen a lot of really, really bad methodology. So, you know, having people that sort of can give a defined sort of, um, baseline analysis that that you can trust basically because it considers all the aspects of the the data analysis that might be lost on sort of a neophyte or somebody who hasn't really thought about this too much yeah that's really important because i when you were talking about these types of c c communication uh, necessities at the end of a data scientific and experimental pipeline who do you need to tell this stuff to are they technical or in 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 any sense yeah so we were lucky enough so they they moved a lot of biology from Connecticut where I was at to Boston but when it was when it was here uh we had a, a pretty good not committee really but you know we had always had a statistician a biologist and a chemist who had dealt with a lot of these problems before would be the the initial people that would consult. So, you know, you would have a, a scientist come in and say, hey, I want to run this big biology experiment and use these microarray technologies. And then we'd sit down with them and say, okay, what's your experimental question? And then they'd tell us, and then they'd tell us what they thought the design should be. And we'd, you know, we'd say things like, hey, you know, most of your design doesn't have anything to do with that question. They said, well, yeah, there's this other stuff I want to do. And we're like, okay, well, hang on. Like you want to compare like 15 things in this experiment and you're going to get maybe 40,000 answers per question. Are you ready to get like a 40 megabyte Excel yeah. file of just p-values and fold changes and gene names? And so, you know, so a lot of times we were communicating to people who maybe at first didn't really understand the technology or at least what they were getting from the technology. Because it can be, we saw a lot of experiments where they had 
good designs, but they were very, they just bit off more than they can chew. And then it's so overwhelming that the, the results never really got, were taken advantage of because, you know, you run this experiment, you answer this one question, but there's 15 other questions that you answered, but, you know, not even the postdocs have time to work on that stuff. So we were very much about like, you know, let's do very focused experiments that answer one experimental question at a time. And just, you know, it was more the, the intuition or the practical aspects of the experiments rather than, you know, how they isolate the RNA or how, the, you know, what p-value correction or whatever they want to do. We, we, those things are all important, but the design, you know, you can't resurrect a, a, a dead experiment because the design was bad. So that was where we spent a lot of our time. And, and we were mostly communicating this to the, the bench scientists and lab heads, uh, which they were all, I, I had just top-notch scientists to work with uh, when I was in drug discovery. So um, if they didn't understand it at first, you know, they were, they were usually pretty respectful of saying, okay, explain it to me again, or they just didn't get it. Say, you know, I'll just have to rely on your judgment. If you think this is a bad idea, then let's not do that. What do you think we should do? So that was always, for the most part, always a, a pleasure to work with them. Okay, great. And I'm sure that emerging technologies at that point, such as the ability to build shiny dashboards, was very helpful in these types of conversations. Yeah, sort of the joke I made is, you know, we don't need another p-value correction, right? Uh, we, yeah. you know, we'll get more, you know, we, we really early on, we developed the idea that, we came up with the idea that uh, rather, we'd rather give them like an interactive volcano plot, which is a plot of like the signal versus the statistical significance of something. And uh, and with these these types of plots, you can very quickly see what what the main drivers of the analysis are. And then, you know, we had systems where they could click on it and have the genome pop up. And so, you know, you would have like a cluster of points on this volcano plot that would sort of stand out. And then we could really quickly see, are those measurements from the same gene or the same gene family? What were they? And, and it was that was just so much better than giving them detailed statistical analyses or reports or again, this like massive Excel file with, you know, all these numbers in it, just to let them just visualize these things and capture what they're interested in and then give them other visualizations where they could, you know, isolate those particular parts of the experiment and say, okay, what was that? Was this an aberration or did we just discover some new aspect of biology we weren't aware of? By far, that was like the most, the most productive part of our work there. We'll jump right back into our interview with Max after a short segment. I'm back here with Susan Sun to discuss the ins and outs of freelance data science. Susan is a freelancer who has worked with the New York Times, Cooney, Google, and General Assembly. Susan, today we're here to talk about practicalities. My first question is about software and productivity tools. In terms of the practical day-to-day runnings of your business, do you use standard free tools or do you purchase proprietary productivity tools and software? Well, I'm a one-person company, and I like to be conservative with my operating cost, so I like to use free tools whenever I can. But I still do wind up with a lot of tools, both free and proprietary. To name a few of the major ones I use, I use Namecheap for the domain name registration, Google Drive for the cloud storage, QuickBooks for accounting and invoicing, Harvest for time tracking, Capital One for business banking, and uh, Moo, spelled M-O-O, for business cards. And finally, obviously, LinkedIn for my professional profile and uh, GitHub for the code storage. Great. 
So another important practicality in any project-based work is timing and, and scoping. How do you think about these in your practice as a freelance data scientist? Scoping is pretty important, but also one of the hardest things to do. Um, for smaller projects, uh, the client usually wants you to quote a price up front, right, after giving you a few details about the project. And the first few times for scoping are usually the hardest because you don't know your own pace very well. This is why I keep very careful tracking of all my projects uh, using Harvest, Google Sheets, or any other invoicing device. And afterwards, I try to break down the tracking to the most granular daily task level. And every iteration that I do this, I get better and better at scoping out just how long it takes to do different types of data work. Interesting. What about operating costs then? I mean, do you rent your own space to work, co-working or otherwise, or do you generally go on site? I looked into renting um, a co-working space when I first started, but I was trying to keep my operating costs low, so I decided not to. Uh, plus, in my opinion, data work is done better on-site anyways. Uh, however, this changes when I'm traveling. Right? So when I'm traveling, I really shop around for co-working spaces. WeWork is very convenient because it has a global presence. And a lot of the metropolitan cities, uh, Hong Kong, Tokyo, London, they have a huge variety of competing co-working brands to choose from. And you can rent both long-term and short-term from them. I think there's even an Airbnb for co-working now. It's called Croissant. Like the pastry. Hmm. So we've talked about building up your practice, but how about taking it down? Do you think at all about an exit strategy? Is it important to do this? I think it's always a good idea uh, to have an open mind about exit strategies. Even if everything's going perfectly and you're perfectly happy with freelancing, it helps to engage in conversation with people who want to talk to you about full-time jobs. It gives you a good sense of just where the market is at right now. Um, and there are also other exit strategies besides full-time. You might want to build your one-person LLC into a real startup with more people. There are a lot of things you should consider before scaling up, though. You have to estimate the operating costs, the overheads. Uh, figure out how to hire is a completely new challenge. And you definitely need to rework your business charter. I think it's a good idea. Uh, every couple of months to have a self-introspection and figure out if you're really happy where you are doing freelancing. Are you getting everything you want out of it? Where can you improve on it? And thinking a lot about what makes you happy that keeps you from burning out in freelance. That's great. These are the types of practical considerations that people think about a lot but do not talk about often enough in public fora. I'm sure many of our listeners will find all of this valuable. I'm glad you feel that way, Hugo. I hope all the segments have been valuable so far and can serve as a guidance for any future freelancers. Time to get straight back into our chat with Max Kuhn. So you mentioned that how complicated the data is in chemistry and how complex and large the data can be in biology also are two of the big challenges that data science can help within in, in pharma. Can you speak to a project or two that you worked on at Pfizer that speak to these challenges? Uh, yeah. The, so the one I, I mentioned earlier where we had all the historical data, that was that was a pretty interesting problem. And I, I think if you look at the, the, like the PDF in the show notes, I think it does a pretty good job of describing it. Yeah. Other things were, um, you know, a lot of times people come to us, <laughs> I think statisticians, uh, especially like PhD statisticians have gotten this um, I don't think we've done this on purpose, but people perceive us as these like wizards, right? So like 
we live in some like dark cave that nobody goes into and people want their, uh, you know, their analysis blessed. And so they're like, they come up to the cave and they're like, Oh, would you please look at this? You know, don't anger the wizard. Um, and then we come out and look at it and be like, yeah, yeah, that's just fine. So there were a lot of situations like that where people would have new methodologies that they have read about or started to develop themselves and wanted to know like, okay, am I completely off base? So there's this area of uh, chemistry of computational chemistry called chem informatics and this is where I will say they are the original data scientists. So I, I just did it. Awesome. Yeah, I know, right? I'll regret that later. They are, for the most part, people with chemistry and computer science backgrounds. And their job is to interrogate very large databases of compounds and assay results and come up with solutions or, or tools and things like that to you know, help sort of accelerate the drug discovery process or the medicinal chemistry process. And so there were so many things that came out of that that we looked at one aspect is this thing called match molecular pairs. So the idea is you can break down like uh, most compounds into certain groups. They usually call them R groups, like the letter R, like the, but it, that's old terminology. It has nothing to do with the programming language. And so what people figured out is when you have a million compounds, you can find common structures in these compound structures, like substructures of them. And if you hold those constant, you can see all the other things that changed. And so it's kind of like taking like the dog, the tail of the dog and grabbing it and let the dog waggle around a little bit. And so in doing that, what they could do is they could just from looking at these databases, they could find interesting either accidental or deliberate transformations that chemists did based on that substructure and find which one of those increased whatever they were looking at. So if they want to make a compound more permeable, they would look at, oh, well, across the 2 million compounds that we saw, when we saw this substructure, if people combine that with this other substructure, it really increased the permeability. And so it's this really interesting mathematical way to go back and see what, you know, observing things that were probably unrelated experiments and seeing how they affected this thing that you might be interested in. And so, so they would take the output of that, and uh, which looked kind of like a heat map. And so they would come to us and say, well, you know, what do we do with these? Like we have all these, these maps to look at of these compound structures. How do we organize it? Do they help us with this aspect? And so, you know, it allows us to come in and use what we know and say, look at it, let's say from an experimental design standpoint and say, well, okay, here's how you can tell a good transformation from a bad transformation. Um, here's what you can do with these, uh, these matrices that you get back from the analysis. So just things like that, I just found like infinitely interesting. And the cool thing about the job was, um, you know, that was like once a month or something like that, that somebody would bring you something and it just blew your mind. And uh, it was very, very hard to say no to these things. So one thing, one aspect that's not so great about non-clinical statistics is, uh, at least in drug discovery, is you tend to have about a, a 200 to 1 scientist to statistician ratio. So you're really, really, really outnumbered. And they're not bringing you problems that are t-tests or like an ANOVA. They're bringing you problems that are like really, really difficult. And so that can be a little bit, and every once in a while you just want a t-test to work on because you're having to work on these really complex and interesting novel problems, but things that might take you six or eight months to figure out. And sometimes you feel like, am I getting anywhere with this? So uh, so that can be, it's, it's a double-edged sword because these things are so interesting and cool to work on, but they're really, really hard. So if you've got like four of those, like in your project list, that could just like, that could kill you just because it's it's so daunting. For sure. And I do think they are very interesting. But as as you said, the fact that a lot of people approach statisticians and data science scientists as wizards of sorts 
or oracles of truth extraction in in a lot of respects is is dangerous. And I can't remember who said this. Um, it was probably Nate Nate Silver or, or someone along those lines. But the quote, which I'm going to mangle horribly, is along the lines of, if a data scientist gets a prediction right, they get more credit than they deserve. And if they get the prediction wrong, they get more blame than they deserve currently. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I would definitely uh, sympathize with that. I, I believe that's true. So, you know, my solution to that is just make millions of predictions. So it's like... <laughs> It's safety in numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an emerging uh, trend and, and, and paradigm is also, as you discuss, you're very interested in, in, in Bayesian thinking uh, and Bayesian inference is with our predictions expressing uncertainty as well. Yeah, absolutely. That. So, you know, I, I began to really use a ton of Bayesian methods for that exact reason, just because there are a lot of times it's really difficult to put estimates of uncertainty on parameters or, or combinations of parameters using sort of like old school mixed models and things like that. So we had tons and tons of repeated measures data of different levels of hierarchy. But if you wanted to get like the uncertainty of the ratio of two parameters, there's some tricks like uh, Filer's theorem and things like that you can do. But all that just comes out in the wash in Bayesian analysis. It's so It makes everything so easy to do. You know, Once you've got a model that you like, um, the things you can do with that model, to I feel like, are far and away more interesting than what you could do with their non-Bayesian um, analogs. Yeah, and I love the idea that you spoke about earlier of coupling uh, Bayesian thinking with shiny dashboards to make kind of the posterior distribution or, you know, for people who don't know what the posterior is, it's really uh, the probability distribution of the parameter of interest after you've incorporated your model and data and your prior knowledge and, and, and all of that. But using a shiny dashboard to communicate this, I think, is a really beautiful coupling of two great technologies. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time trying to eradicate as much jargon as we could from those those pages. We, you know, we never said posterior. We never, I don't even think we even said Bayesian. We would basically in like as much like straight English as we could muster, uh, try to describe what these things were computing. And, and to the credit of the scientists, they, they really began to figure that out. There were some situations where it gave results that we thought that they were going to think were wrong. So, so there are some assays like our, our activity assays that have extremely bimodal distributions. We have this really big normal distribution that's pretty wide. Let's say it's like plus or minus uh, 30, like the, the tails of that distribution are centered around zero. They could be, you know, as low as minus 30 and as high as uh, plus 30. And then the hits, the active compounds, you know, tend to have a, a much smaller normal distribution that maybe are, let's say, like 75 to 100. Um, so you have this like the prior distribution that you come up with with your Bayesian analysis based on uh, a lot of compounds was extremely bimodal. And so then you give them a result and let's say the data that they hand you is uh, has an activity of like 40. So it's probably above, you know, the the part of the prior that is for the the non hits. So the the distribution that the the shiny apps would give them would be a really, really bimodal distribution. And it makes sense why that is. Because um, it's sort of in the middle of these two different distributions, um, and there wasn't, you know, until they collect enough replicates, the the posterior distribution doesn't get, you know, very tight. And we thought that they were going to completely kind of be like, you know, I think you computed this wrong. But uh, but they kind of before we even brought it up said, oh yeah, it totally makes sense that you know there's a slightly higher probability that it's dead, and then you know a you know forty percent probability that it's an active compound, and I can see why that it was. So I, I was really impressed by people with little to no statistical background, just consuming these things and 
in uh, in sort of accepting them and, and rationalizing what they were doing without us have to getting get into some discussion about priors and posteriors and things like that. Great. So you now no longer work in, in pharma. You work, as you said earlier, at our studio, but you work as a as a software engineer. Uh, and but of course, what you do is impacted a lot by all the work you've been doing in pharma f- for decades. So I'm wondering how you see the work you do now, computational, new evolving computational paradigms such as the tidyverse, impacting the data community in, in, in pharma? Yeah, I mean, everything we do in, a, in at our studio and especially in the, the Tidyverse group is really just enabling people to do more or do things more easily. If you think about like Dplyr and things like that, you know, Dplyr and the Tidyverse take things that, uh, especially in R, were, were feasible to do, but just sort of like kludgy, you know, that's a, a Baltimore word meaning like really awkward. Okay. And so it just makes those things very really easy to accomplish. And so, you know, that happens all the time everywhere. I would say the things that in, when I was, before I joined our studio that I thought were the biggest, the best tools that, that satisfied that, like, let's just make it really easy sort of goal is, was number one was R Markdown. So, you know, I never was really totally prescriptive about saying, if you're going to work in my group, you have to use R. But one of the the most important things we did was, you know, really try to enable reproducible research that... You know, we made sure that when somebody had a project, we knew what data was used. We knew what the analysis code was. We could tie that directly to a report because, you know, we might not work on that project for five years. And then somebody comes to us and says, yeah, what did you do for this? And if we didn't have something like our markdown um, or, you know, S Weave and Knitter and all those tools that we've had, and I think have gotten taken for granted at this point, you know, we wouldn't be able to effectively have any record of what we did and how we did it. And it really wouldn't help anybody down the road. Or, you know, even I'd work on something and six months later, somebody would say, well, what did you do here? And I've done like 15 projects since then. So, so our markdown uh, in that enabling reproducible research was uh, just a godsend. And, you know, and I mentioned shiny, I can't sort of um, overemphasize how much that has made a difference. And it would, for me, it's been interesting because, at Pfizer, at least, some of the biggest proponents of using Shiny were the clinical pharmacologists. So these are people that are measuring drug concentrations uh, in patients in clinical trials. And um, and they, I think, behind non-clinical statistics were the people who were the most into Shiny and how can we utilize this. And, and they're on a very, very, very regulated part of that pipeline. Um, and to see them sort of embracing computational and visualization aspects of, uh, of what they do is, I thought it was really unusual in uh, in a good way. So those are the things I think that as far as like our studio stuff that uh, has made a huge difference. You know, for me, Carrot was originally designed to to make, you know, predictive modeling easier in R. And, and I think it it does that pretty well. It makes a lot of decisions for you and, it, and it's pretty high level code. But my job right now is basically to take from a broader standpoint of like modeling, you know, just make make it easier to work with models in R. So if you're fitting a survival analysis model or a time series model or, you know, a standard regression model, there's this package called Broom that David Robinson wrote. And that that's a great way to, to talk to um, – that exemplifies what I'm getting at is there was, we've all had code that would take, you know, the summary object of a linear model uh, that gave you output back that you wanted but not in a format that you would ever want it to be in. And then we all had code that would take that and maybe make it into a data frame and format it and make the, you know, even the title or the um, column names of these things, depending on what type of uh, model you fit, would be named differently. And so uh, a lot of us have had code laying around to just make this all work. 
and, and basically what the tidyverse does, and especially what I'm trying to do with modeling in the tidyverse, is to extend that more and say, you know, let's let's just take these things that have been sort of frustrating to work with in the past and make them uh, just smooth and make, you know, enable people to do these things without, you know, banging their head against Yeah, the wall. so something I find really interesting in this conversation is a trade-off that occurs in your career and several colleagues of yours as well. And I'll be specific about this in that you started developing software to meet needs that you and your colleagues had. And eventually uh, you ended up at a place like our studio where you're developing this software constantly, but you don't necessarily have direct contact with people on the ground who have all the needs that you're trying to serve. So I suppose my question is, how do you, now you're at our studio and not at Pfizer, how how do you stay grounded in the needs of people using the software you're developing? Uh, well, it's part of me think it's not that difficult to do because when everybody has a question, they ask you. I mean, people. One great thing yeah, about the community right. is there's unlike when I was in graduate school or in my first job, I would have never thought to like email like Jerry Friedman and say, "Yeah, about Mars. Like, how does this work?" You know. And it, mm-hmm. the thing about especially the R community in statistics is. There's this is it's not a perception, but there's generally speaking a, a much lower barrier to contacting people that you think can answer your question. So, you know, like maybe twice a week I'll just get a blanket question about like, hey, have you ever had data like this and what did you do with it? And so that helps me a lot because it, it helps me understand like sort of weak points in things that I think we could do better. Um it helps me understand what people are working on, if it's something that you know, if, especially if it's something I didn't really have a lot of exposure to, that gives me some motivation to uh, to learn more about it and to figure out like, you know, I'm not like, if you email me, you know, I could be like consultant and answer everybody's question. But a lot of times, uh, if there's a particular question that sort of strikes me, I'll, I'll, I'll spend like you know, two or three hours like figuring it out and then sometimes give people like a really detailed explanation back. So I, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to learn and um, sort of keep your ear to the ground and, and figure out what's going on. I, I do have to admit, though, that the, probably the, the biggest adjustment for me working at our studio is I don't get data, right? I don't get, I'm used to getting like a ton, maybe more than I wanted sometimes, but a ton of new data that sometimes is really simple and sometimes really complex. And so I'm constantly on the lookout for for new data, especially for teaching and putting in our packages to demonstrate things. And so that that is one thing it's taken me quite a bit to get used to is, you know, there are areas that I'd, I'd love to do more with, but I just don't have any, I don't have any uh, data to, to work on that sometimes. So that, that's, that's more of a problem than, than anything else that I have. And I do think your point to people reaching out now and that being a paradigm of communication, I mean, Stack Overflow has proved a really important place and you've always been, I mean, I see questions about Carrot on, on, on Stack Overflow and you're very commonly one of the first people to, to, to respond there. A place you haven't been until very recently though, which the RStats community has been very active in, in general and a great, I, I suppose, place for communication is Twitter. Yeah, it, it's been good. I've I've enjoyed being on there. Um, you know, let's how should I say this? In the last year or two, you know, Twitter's not been known for constructive discourse between people. Like you know, um, you know, talking to people, it's not been very constructive. And uh, and you know, the RSAS community is the complete opposite of that. You know, so I expected some trolling and some things like that. And I've seen almost none of that. It's been, um, they just embrace positivity. I'm actually, I'm sorry you haven't been trolled enough. So I'll make sure to remedy that <laughs> sooner rather than, than later. 
Um, <laughs> we've been talking about budding data scientists. I'm wondering what, what advice you'd give to a budding data scientist who wants to get started in, in the pharmaceutical industry. So I think the first thing I'd say is go into non-clinical statistics. I know I keep talking about it. And the reason is, you know, that's, there's a couple of reasons, actually. That's where the fun is. So, you know, everybody I know who works in clinical, not everybody, but the majority of them, would, nobody would describe it as fascinating, right? I don't think that anybody would ever in a million years describe the statistics that goes on for clinical studies as being like, like as infinitely fascinating as I, I, I hear myself and other people describe non-clinical. So if you're interested in something that's really going to like knock your socks off every day, then that's the place to go. But I think more broadly, the thing I would say is that it's easy to underestimate how much stuff is out there that, for learning. And so like a good example, and again, this is like, what year would this be? This would be like maybe 2000. Uh, you know, I started having to work on, you know, micro experiments and these high dimensional biology experiments. And I had never, I mean, I kind of knew a little bit about that stuff, but I'd never really had to really do an analysis. And, and I had a very high profile, this is pre-Pfizer for me, a uh, very, very high profile set of data that were coming my way. And so, you know, I just started, for example, just uh, running Google with like the site uh, filter for EDU and looking for courses that taught uh, how to do this analysis. And then you could just, you know, there's software, you can just really easily download that whole website. And so very, very quickly, I was able to get very conversant, very functional in doing a data analysis where I'd never been exposed to the actual data. Like they had example data there, but the real data that I was going to get was, you know, months down the road. And again, the, the infrastructure and overhead for analyzing that data is not insignificant. And so if I had just waited till I got that data and then figured out like, what should I do and what software should I do and I should look around, that would have been a disaster. And so between, you know, between courses that you see, things like Data Camp, you know, and just like even YouTube videos and Twitter, especially and blogs, if you find, if you're looking to learn about something, there are no end of resources out there. And the benefit of like data science and statistics is that, you know, if you want to be a medicinal chemist, you kind of need a lab, right? So you need, you know, if you want to learn how to synthesize compounds, you need some big compute, you know, some big machinery to, to actually do that. And we're not in that situation. So we can, we can very, very easily download and get access to tons of real information that, that basically emulate what it would have been like to get that data in the first place and, and do the analysis. And so it might be seeing the obvious, but um, a lot of times I'll look for resources on how to do something and I might find one and maybe they're talking to me in a way like maybe they're, sometimes I'll read things and they're talking to people like they already have a PhD in that subject. And that's no good for me because I can't do anything with that. Originally, I would be like, oh, you know, that seems like all I can find. And it's not, you know, just throw that away and go find something else. There's no reason to not be able to learn about whatever topic that you want to learn about in data science or statistics. I mean, sometimes there's like high level theoretical statistical stuff, but, you know, arguably, I don't know why anybody doing data analysis might be seriously interested in that. I mean, not that it's not, doesn't have utility, but if you're trying to get things done, measure theory is maybe not the answer. So yeah, so I would just say, you know, look around as much as you can, especially on Twitter, like our bloggers and things like that. And uh, you will most likely find at different levels of sophistication, complexity, you'll probably find plenty of resources for what you're trying to do. For sure. And it takes time and, and patience. And also when I, when I run workshops, I always pretty much at the very start, 
tell everyone that search engines will be their best friends in these types of endeavors if they can't can't figure anything out figure something out yeah and it sounds stupid but that you know when i doing doing my google search and putting site colon you know dot edu uh that was a huge help because uh, you know, it gets it gets rid of most of the the hits you would get based on people trying to sell you things, right? So, so if you want to like learn about microarrays, and you might get like you know the first fifty hits being companies that sell instruments that can do you know microarrays, and and so that was like that enabled me to get very very far uh, pretty quickly. To wrap up, I'd I'd love to know what what you love doing. What's one of your favorite data sciencey techniques or methodologies? It, it may be a little higher level than. Uh, I should quote, but you know, I'm just uh, becoming a bigger and bigger fan of of Bayes for certain things. So it's not like it's. I don't. People are going to get mad at me and start sending me hate mail for saying this, but I don't know that it's it's there for every problem. So Lee Ryman, the guy who invented uh, Random Forest and was one of the inventors of CART, you know, wrote this really kind of inflammatory paper called uh, "There's No Bayesians in Foxholes," which is a riff of you know, "There's No Atheists in Foxholes," and and what he was trying to get at is. His thoughts, at least maybe in the 80s when he wrote this, was the complexity of what we need in machine learning in terms of predictive power will never be, you'll never be able to do that using Bayesian methods. And I don't know that that's true. I think he was being a little bit, instigating a little bit there. But but for the types of questions that I, I'm usually trying to answer that are not straight up prediction problems, then I, I'm finding more and more that 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 Bayesian analysis is the best way to go. Um, there's so many There's so many advantages... And, you know, as a statistician of my sort of vintage, you know, I, I was in graduate school when Bayes was kind of looked down upon. It was just starting to become like something people were getting more and more interested in, in the reviving it, right? And so, but I always found it funny that, you know, when people would talk about some non-Bayesian model, they would set it up and, and motivate it from something that sounded like suspiciously like a Bayesian model, except they just didn't want to say that word, right? It was like a bad word. And so I, I find that this, you know, this perceived hold of that people have with Bayesian analysis about its complexity and what about this prior or that prior? I mean, it's you're doing the same thing in a lot of non-Bayesian models. It's just you don't have the mechanism to actually evaluate that that assumption. And so I, I find it to be a very rational and very advantageous way of doing data analysis, especially if you have to do anything around inference uh, or, or any measure of uncertainty. So, you know, as a, a good example, maybe before I left Pfizer, there was this one um, safety group that was trying to predict a particular type of toxicity that's extremely rare, but uh, extremely hard to predict. So they would get compounds and they would have to give, you know, a prediction back by saying, yes, this is toxic or no, that's not toxic or here or it's somewhere in between. And this group got a bunch of modeling people together and, you know, they gave us a long talk about like, we've read about self-driving cars and neural networks. You know, we want to really solve this problem. We think we need some really high powered stuff to do it because we've never been able to crack this nut. And, you know, and, and I, I like to hear that, right? So I'm like, all right, like, what are we going to do? Uh, and then when you talk to them, they had like 15 data points. And so, you know, at that point, and, you know, when they wanted measures of uncertainty, they didn't want to they want to get a prediction back with some measure uh, without a measure of of what the noise was mm -hmm. and and that's a bayesian analysis problem so not because it's necessarily simplistic but with that amount of data you you're probably going to have to rely on a prior um, or do something that involves more than just the data you have at hand 
and you know factor that into the uncertainty estimates. And so it just seems like such a good solution in a lot of problems that I don't know. At the time when I was learning statistics, I feel in hindsight it was a little bit of a disservice that people weren't more excited or proposing more Bayesian solutions at the time. Yeah. So and anyway, I think it is historical. It's also these things are generational as well. We have the computational power to be doing a lot of uh, Bayesian inference now, but it is generational. I mean, my background's in academia, and it's definitely generational in, in institutions uh, li- like that. There are so many interesting things in, in what you just said. One of the most important is that the technique needs to be specified by the question and, and the data as well. So Bayesian works for a lot of stuff, but there's some things that it's it's not so good at, at, at thinking about. The other thing you mentioned, which is about it being called Bayesian, I've always joked, kind of half-joked, that part of the reason – you referred to it as some people think of it as a, as a bad word. And part of the reason it hasn't been so adopted historically is because calling it Bayesian inference makes it sound like something niche and out of, out of the ordinary, as opposed to it being a way of doing statistics and inference. Yeah, I agree. It, 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 it's funny. It, it, sometimes you can turn this to your advantage. It does have this like, I don't know, this not intimidating, but this like um, exotic quality to it. Oh, it's Bayesian, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. So it, I just found that funny. Um, so one thing is, you know, it, when I was at Pfizer, we used Apple laptops a lot, mostly because we needed Unix on our laptops. But we would have to go through this process of like justifying to the IT people, like why you couldn't do it on a ThinkPad. And so we would just use the word Bayesian and neural network or support vector machine. And people are like, oh, oh, they're doing neural networks or they're Bayesians. Like they didn't <laughs> know what that was. But even just, yeah. you know, even like a guy in IT, you would say, well, you know, doing Bayesian analysis and they'd be like, oh my goodness, there's there's something like inherent or instinctual about that word that makes people like, oh, it's com- complicated. And uh, I just I just found that to be really funny um, that you could throw, there are certain words you could throw at people and they're just like naturally intimidating. <laughs> and that for some reason is one of them. Yeah. Max, this has been so much fun and it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it's been great. Great talking to you. Thanks for joining our conversation with Max about data science and non-clinical statistics at Pfizer and more generally in the pharmaceutical industry. We saw that much of the work Max did went into drug discovery and how essential it was to be able to deal with large amounts of data from disparate sources for high throughput pipelines and platforms for high dimensional biology experiments. We also saw how new developments in computational paradigms and APIs, such as the emergence of the tidyverse in R, have allowed massive gains in efficiency for all this type of work. In Max's words, shiny is worth a million new p-value correction methods. Make sure to check out our next episode, a conversation with Amber Thomas focused on data journalism, visualization, and storytelling. Amber is a journalist engineer at The Pudding, which is a collection of data-driven visual essays. We'll go through the process of what it takes to tell interactive journalistic stories using data visualization. And along the way, we'll find out what it takes to be successful at data journalism, the trade-off between being a generalist and specialist and much more. We'll navigate these waters, anchoring ourselves in several case studies, including a piece that Amber worked on late last year called How Far Is Too Far? An Analysis of Driving Times to Abortion Clinics in the US. This couldn't be more timely particularly with President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, which could have lasting impact on the fate of Roe v. Wade and the future of abortion legislation in the United States. I'm your host, Hugo Bown-Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bown and Datacamp at Datacamp.
You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Now it's time for a segment called Data Framed Bloopers with Hugo and Max. Max, this has been so much fun and it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it's been great. Great talking to you. And scene. That was great, Max. <laughs> I realized I, I almost went back and corrected it. I realized I said, you know, there's not much good intercourse on Twitter. I'm like, discourse. You <laughs> oh, no, I love discourse, it. Discourse, no, no, you idiot. No, we, I, I noticed that. And I think that's that's brilliant. We can record, re-record that now if, if, if you'd like, because I can always edit, edit that in. Sure. I'm not even sure what the question was. Oh, is that um, on Twitter? Yeah. If you just say the word discourse, I mean, you said, just say the word discourse. and I can, But I actually would love to keep it as intercourse, but I understand <laughs> if you- uh, I'm going to do it with a straight face. Uh, discourse. <laughs> <laughs>